to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. And as I say, I'm thankful for another opportunity to talk about one of the Bible's most important doctrines. And one of the clearest statements that we have in all the Word of God is what Paul says right here in this first chapter of Ephesians when he says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. And that is a very clear and simple statement. Not only is it clear and simple, but it shows us that salvation can only be of God. It can't be based upon anything that is in man. And it's such a clear statement, and yet there are multitudes of attempts to nullify what the Word of God says on this. And what people have put into its place is a man-made idea of a synergistic, cooperative effort between man and God in order that we might be saved. But these scriptures make it very clear to us the timing of when Paul says that this took place before the foundation of the world shows us that only God could be in control of this. And so what is uh, decided uh, before the foundation of the world has to take place exactly as it was decided in time. And that's why we talk about election or the choosing of God before the foundation of the world, but yet we talk about salvation as something that occurs in time. And there are many people who, who uh, argue against the doctrine of election by saying that what we're actually preaching is that people are saved before the foundation of the world. But that's not true. We're not saying that at all. God has made a choice before the foundation of the world, but we are saved in time, elected before the foundation, but saved in time by the means that God has already determined that we would be saved. And, of course, the means is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there is no person who will ever be saved unless they hear and believe the gospel of Christ. That's God's chosen means. Now, this evening, I want to preach part two of this message, chosen by God. And we're going to see tonight how God uses this uh, idea or this doctrine of election to bring about the purposes for which God has chosen us. So let's stand, please, in reverence for the reading of God's Word. And we want to look at our text verses now in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, this word that we've read tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the great doctrine that is expounded here by the Apostle Paul. We thank you, Lord, for the truths that we're able to see in your word. Bless us in this message tonight. Open our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to point out by way of review tonight that Paul's statement here in this first chapter passes over the work of Christ on the cross And it passes over the response of man in belief when he speaks about and declares God's election of certain individuals to salvation. The primary action that God has performed here is by God the Father himself. God is the one who does the choosing, and when he chooses people for salvation, he gives them to the Son, and they are the ones that the Son has come into the world to redeem. And the primary purpose of God's election is brought about by the exercise of God's will. This is simply 
God's decision. And we don't have any right to question God about anything that he does, but we just rely totally and wholly upon him because God always does what's right, and we just accept what his word has to say about it. And I want to also mention tonight a very important statement because this is a premise that we must lay down right now that's important for the whole message tonight, and that is that we are chosen for God's glory before we are chosen for our own good. And that's a very important statement to understand because it's the very difference between man-centered theology and God-centered theology. And almost all of Christendom today has the idea that God's purpose in salvation was chiefly for man. That God's purpose in the world is chiefly for man. But that's not the approach that Paul has in this chapter uh, to this subject. Our salvation is not primary God's glory is primary, and always God's glory is primary. Now, to understand everything that I'm going to speak about tonight, and to understand how that God lays out this purpose, we have to accept that statement as a true premise. Everything is for God's glory first, and then man's benefit secondly. And if people would just understand and believe that statement, they wouldn't have any trouble at all uh, believing the doctrine of election just exactly as Paul presented to us in this scripture. So everything is for God's glory first. So as you think about that statement tonight, let, let's discuss then about being chosen by God. And this evening I want to show you some of the benefits of this doctrine, the benefits of election. The first thing that we can say about it is that election promotes holiness. It's the purpose of God. God's purpose is to remove and to rectify all of the sinful and evil effects that occurred in man because of the fall of Adam. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. Now listen to this next part of this. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, of course, the fall of man was the work of the devil. And what Jesus came into this world to do was to undo all of the works of the devil. And what he came to do was to set this world upright again from all of the sinful effects of the fall. We read in the book of Romans chapter 8 where Paul writes on this very subject and he talks about how all of creation will be redeemed. All the, all the animal kingdom, all of the creatures, even the cursed ground, he says, will be redeemed. But more important than speaking about the soulless animals and talking about inanimate creation, the most important part of this is that man himself will be redeemed. And that is that Christ came to restore man back to the holy state that he had before Adam fell in the garden. Now Paul states in verse number 4 of our text, he says that we are chosen that we should be holy and without blame. I want to pay you to pay close attention to this because these two words here, holy and without blame, refer to two different aspects of our sanctification. But before I get to that actual point, I do want to say that sanctification is something that is in view in these verses. Now, really, this is a place where those who deny the doctrine of election as we believe it, 
will say that God has chosen uh, people to sanctification, but He has not chosen certain individuals to salvation. They'll say, actually, that God is talking about the end result. In other words, the individual is not chosen for personal salvation, but simply that all people who are saved have been chosen to be sanctified in the eyes of God, to become holy and without blame. But again, it doesn't have anything to do with personal salvation. So in other words, God has not chosen us to salvation, but only that the ones who have been chosen will be sanctified. But that's actually an argument that doesn't hold any water because there is no one who gets sanctified without being justified. And we read here in verse number 4 where it says, us. And the us here is a very personal word. And Paul is speaking personally to us, and he's saying that we have been personally chosen before the foundation of the world. And so if before the foundation of the world, God has decided to sanctify certain individuals, then also God must have decided to justify those very same individuals because it is impossible for us to have sanctification without justification. And so if God has elected to sanctification, then we also have to say that he has elected to justification. And we would also say that he has elected to glorification. And we would say that he has elected to imputation. And we would say that any person who is going to be holy and without blame before God must have certainly been elected to regeneration. And when you put all of that together, what you have is man has been chosen to salvation. And that's what Paul is speaking about here. Now, if that weren't true, if God just simply said, I'm calling people out to be sanctified and to be holy and without blame, but I'm not speaking about their personal salvation, then it would mean it would be possible for a lost person to actually become holy. And it would be possible for a lost person to become without blame. And so it should be clear to us that we must be talking about salvation when we speak about election. Now, two weeks ago, I mentioned to you a fundamentalist preacher, uh, a, a, what some call a scholar, and he is in many ways, but he's the fundamentalist guru named John Phillips. And if you've ever had any of these books, you'll, you, you would read this in here, that he believes that God has elected us based on the knowledge that God knew that we would believe. In other words, God chose us because he saw that we would be holy. And he uses that to deny that God elects to salvation. But I want you to notice here what Paul says. Is that what he says? No, Paul doesn't say this. He says that God chose us that we would be holy and without blame. It does not say that he chose us because he saw that we would be holy. He chose us in order to make us holy. And folks, that's nothing short of election to salvation. So sanctification is the thing that's in view here, but it's sanctification determined for the individual by God before the foundation of the world. Now, I'd like to look for the next few minutes at these two words, holy and without blame, because these relate to two different aspects of our sanctification. First of all, we are chosen for inward sanctification. And that's the word holy. The word holy refers to our inward sanctification. And this is a word that means that we become inwardly pure. And actually here, this is the stronger of the two terms, because inward holiness and purity are first. These things are primary because what you are on the inside, being inwardly holy, or what you are on the inside, dictates what you are on the outside. An inward holiness would indicate that there must be a change of heart. God said, be ye holy, for I am holy. And that's because whatever is not holy can never have fellowship with God. 
And so the scriptures are very clear to us and they teach us that man without Christ has a heart that is deceitfully wicked. He tells us that we have a nature that's at enmity with God. We're not subject to God. We can't please God. And so what has to happen to a person is that his heart must be changed. And sanctification, as we speak about it here, is the product of a changed heart. Well, you ought to be able to figure this out, that this must take us back to our earlier statement, that you can't get sanctification without regeneration. And so if a man is chosen to sanctification, that must mean that he's chosen to have a change of his heart, because that's the only way sanctification can take place. And, of course, that works in perfectly with what Paul has said in these verses. God has chosen us to be holy. Now, John says in 1 John uh, 1, verse 5, This, then, is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Well, of course, we understand that the word light has reference to no sin. Darkness has reference to evil or to the presence of sin. And the Bible teaches us that God is holy, he's pure, there's no darkness and there's no deceit in God. And in the Gospel of John, we read there that Jesus is the light of men. He's the light that came to shine into the darkness. And and he's the one that that showed us how to be saved. And, And the Bible says that the darkness did not comprehend this light. And so there were men who dwell in darkness. And the only way that the darkness can shine into a person, if God decides to open his heart so that he can see the light, and so that he can understand that light and become holy in that light. You see, friends, uh, the Word of God fits perfectly together because the Gospel of John makes it just clear, as clear as Paul has made it, that Jesus has shined into the hearts, not of all men, has he? Because there are lost people. There are lost people living in darkness today. And God has not shined into the heart of all men. But light has shone into the hearts of some men, and some men have become holy. We remember all those parallel passages, I hope, that I gave you last week, and that shows us that both John and Paul are in harmony on this doctrine of election. Well, holiness is the positive side of sanctification. It's the inward part. But secondly, we need to see that we are chosen for outward sanctification, and that is to be without blame. You see, without blame is the part that has to do with the outward man. Holiness is positive, but without blame is negative. It means to to be absent from pollution. Without blame, of course, is what you see on the outside. And even though that's not the primary thing, that's what we make primary. We make it primary because all that we can see is the outside. Only God is able to look on the heart. And so we only make judgments based upon what we see on the outside. We see the outward results. And that's one of the reasons why we spend so much time talking about the Christian walk. How that you ought to live every day. The different things that you ought to do in your life that exemplify Christ and show people that you are a Christian. Because the only way that a person could judge whether you have been sanctified in your heart is by what they see on the outside. And so the Bible very clearly talks about our walk with God. Our fellowship with God is dependent upon how we walk with God. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 6 it says... If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, and that means the outside, walking in darkness on the outside, we lie and do not the truth. So the picture that we have of salvation is of a person who has abandoned his old way of life, that he's begun to walk in a new life. 
When you get baptized, uh, not only is baptism a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but the Bible also teaches us that is a picture of rising to walk in the new life in Christ. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even, we, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So there we have the purpose of God's election. It is that we might glorify God, and the only way that we can glorify God is to be inward inwardly and outwardly sanctified to be holy and without blame. In 1 Thessalonians, we read, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Now, we notice there again, Paul talks about the will of God. And as we go through these first few verses over the next weeks, we see this theme coming back and back and back over and over again. The will of God, the will of God, the will of God. And it makes it clear to us we're always talking about what God wants. We're not speaking about what man wants. It's what God wants. And the will of God is that we would praise Him, that we would glorify Him, and our sanctification is the will of God. So what happens here is that your election does not stop with the fact that you've been chosen simply uh, to be converted to Christ, but also this election to God is something that carries us all the way through. It sees us all the way through our life, and it's a permanent fixture of a person who is a child of God. It takes us all the way to perfection. Now we go on tonight to the second benefit of election, and the second benefit is that election promotes love. It says here that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Well, of course, we thank God for his love. And the love of God is most gloriously shown in that man uh, has not been left to die and go to hell. Because of God's election, there are many who will not perish in hell. And in fact, that's where all of us were headed. Now, you know, there are some people who say that if God has elected people to heaven, then he must also have elected some men to go to hell. But the Bible never speaks about election in that way. It never speaks of election negatively. Election is always positive. There is not one single person who is ever elected to go to hell. We don't have to be elected to go to hell because we are on our way to hell already. Uh, By our own choice, by our own desires, the fact that we sin against God, we are condemned to go to hell. But what election does is to prevent some of those people from going to hell. Now, there's some people, they will say, well, that's not fair. And I would tell, tell you, if you object to this, thank God that it's not fair, because if we're talking about fairness instead of grace, we'd all go to hell if you want to talk about being fair. The only time that we can complain to God that this is not fair is when we can establish that there is no one who justly deserves to go to hell. And if you're able to establish that, then I will agree with you. It's not fair. But I'm not looking at fairness. I'm looking at the grace of God. And God has prevented some from going to hell by giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what about God's love and election? Well, we notice first that God has chosen us in order to reverse our enmity. What is love? If we define love, what is love? Well, we would say there's a lot of definitions for it, but we could say that it's the opposite of enmity. 
Enmity means hostility towards a person. It means to have a deep-seated ill will against another person. It means hatred and it means strife. And of course, love is the opposite of all those things. And God has chosen in love to remove from us all of this enmity. The cause of all this is sin. And through Jesus Christ, the obstacle that separates us from God has been removed from us. Now, if we were to have to stand before God with our enmity intact, that would be a fearful thing. Can you imagine having to stand before God and trying to explain to him why you rejected Jesus Christ? And having to stand before him and tell him why that you trampled under your feet the blood of Jesus Christ? I wouldn't want to stand in front of God and have to explain that. And and Paul says that's what every unbeliever faces. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, that's what you face. And he said, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Well, we thank the Lord for this, that what God has done is to reverse in us the effects of the fall. Now, there's a lot of argument. If you do much studying on this, there's quite a bit of argument about the word love in that verse and and where actually should love go. Some say that the word love should be connected with the fifth verse rather than the fourth verse. But I think it's best understood that the word love here refers to us and not to God. And I say that because when God has chosen us to be holy and without blame in love, it means that he has reversed our hatred for God. He's changed that around. And so the love he's talking about is the love that he puts into our hearts to enable us to love him. You see, God chose us that we might be able to love him. And I, and I really hope that you understand the weight and the importance of that statement because we couldn't love God before. None of us loved him. And God has chosen us in order that we might love him. Well, that begs the response that some people give, and they say, well, God doesn't force anybody to love him. But you see, when God changes your heart, you don't feel forced. You're willing. You come to him willingly. And in fact, that's the only way that you will be willing, is when God changes your heart in love, when he he changes that heart of enmity to love for him. That's the only time that you will be willing to come to Christ. But then there are some people who say, well, uh, I know some good people. They aren't believers in Jesus Christ, but they love and they worship God. They haven't been born again, but they love God. What you really need to do is take a moment to examine uh, who and what they think that God is. Because you'll find that people who are like that, they've stripped away God's wrath. They've taken away God's judgment. They've done away with God's perfect righteousness, and what they have done is to substitute in its place their own righteousness. And that's the only way that they figured that they would be able to get to heaven without knowing Jesus Christ. And so actually a person like that has rejected the total essence of all biblical revelation. And by their belief, they prove that they are really at enmity with God, exactly like Paul says. So here, we we ought not ever to make a mistake of thinking that our friends... Our neighbors, our relatives, people of our families, I say, our co-workers, whoever it is, that if they are not saved, that somehow still they love God. The Bible says that they are at enmity with God. Whenever you reject Christ, you are the enemy of God. When you reject Christ, you reject God. And why is that? Because Jesus said, I and my Father are one. You can't reject Christ without rejecting the Father. And so people who do not believe in Christ 
don't love God. They are haters of God, exactly as the Bible says. But God has chosen some to love him, and it's clear that all men don't love God. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it. And listen to this phrase, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. So you see that? The ones who are given to Jesus by the Father, the elect of God. Jesus says that they would have the love in them that the Father also has for the Son. So God has given us that love. And that's what this is all about. God has chosen us that we might love him. Now I want you to notice secondly that God has chosen us in order to realize his purpose. Now I want to go back to that statement at the beginning of the message. I said that we were chosen for God's glory before we were chosen for our own good. And that is the difference between man-centered theology and God-centered theology. And as we think about our holiness and we think about being without blame and being chosen by God that we might love him, what is it that you would expect that God chose us? What is the reason why God chose us? Was it because that we might be forgiven? Or did he choose us that we might go to heaven? Or has God chosen us so that we might be rewarded? Why is it that God chose us? Well, actually, the complete answer to that question is in verse number four. That we might be holy and without blame before him in love. And so we notice something about that statement that God's desire for us to be holy comes before our desire for happiness. His desire for us to be holy comes before our well-being. It comes before our reward. It comes before anything else. You see, only God's election can bring us to the place that we are undefiled before him in love and having that enmity changed to where we are reconciled with God. And that's the only way that God's ultimate purpose can be realized in, the, in us. So that is the primary thing. So when you think about salvation, how do you define it? What is salvation? Is it happiness? Is salvation morality? Is it forgiveness? Well, it includes all of those things, doesn't it? But primarily, what does salvation mean? Salvation means to be in a right relationship with God. And God has chosen us to be in a right relationship with Him. And only when we are in a right relationship with God is God most magnanimously glorified. Now, folks, this doctrine of election or God choosing us is one that we ought to very boldly teach. We ought not to be afraid of this. We ought to proclaim it because here is a doctrine that brings glory to God and God only. It all goes to God. But why, why do people actually reject this? Because in their minds they really believe that man is primary and they cannot believe somehow, some way, that God has the right to do whatever he chooses to do with man, that God can do whatever he pleases but Paul anticipated that objection before anyone could even raise it when he said in the book of Romans chapter 9, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? You see, folks, we're puny, and God is almighty. And how dare any person 
any Baptist preacher even or anyone else to say, I don't think so. God doesn't have the right to choose, and God didn't choose anyone. A person who believes like that has made a God of their choosing, and he's not the God that's in this Bible. Now, let me finish tonight's lesson with the last benefit of election. Um, in the next lessons, there's going to be a lot more said on this subject, and, and uh, it, it weaves into everything that we study here in some way or another. But the third thing I would like to bring out to you tonight, that election promotes evangelism. And I suppose if there was any charge that was uh, laid against the doctrine of election for people to, to argue against it, it is that people say that our view of election cannot be evangelistic. And I don't suppose that there has ever been a more spurious charge or a, a greater false charge that's been made against this doctrine than that particular charge. Because it's not something that could be proved by history. In fact, the greatest evangelistic campaigns that took place in the history of the world were under the preaching of the very same things that I'm talking about tonight. They have come under the preaching of the doctrines of grace. Now, let me talk about uh, revivals for just a moment. And the first instance of a great revival is one that we find in the book of Acts, chapter 2. And most of you would recognize it very quickly as Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. When Peter preached on that day, there were 3,000 people who got saved. Well, a question that we could ask is, did Peter preach election during that sermon on Pentecost? Well, I want to show you that he did. In Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, Peter said, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Who's given salvation? Only those that God has seen fit to call. Does God call everyone to salvation? Well, I don't think so. If he did, then Peter would have said, For the promise is unto you and to your children. And in fact, the promise is for everybody. But that's not what Peter said. He said, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Did Peter preach the sovereign choice of God before the foundation of the world? Well, we need to look at what Paul said, or Peter rather said in verse 23 of this sermon, right in the middle of the sermon. He said, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And so what Peter tells us that everything concerning the death of Christ was prophesied right down to the fact that Judas would be chosen as one of the twelve and Judas was the one who would betray Christ. And so Peter very clearly preached the sovereign choices of God before the foundation of the world. But what about other revivals that we've seen in history? Does God's choice and election and salvation dampen enthusiasm for evangelism? Well, it's very strange that Many of our Baptist brethren who hate the doctrine of election will talk about a man by the name of William Carey. William Carey was uh, the first one who took the gospel into India in the 18th century when there wasn't very much mission work going on at all in the world. Matter of fact, it was practically nil. None was being done. William Carey, a Baptist preacher who preached exactly what I've been preaching to you tonight, was called the father of modern missions. And he preached this and people got saved. There was also Adoniram Judson and Luther Rice. These were also men back at that time who pioneered modern missions, and they believed exactly what I'm preaching to you tonight. 
Then we think about Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century. Jonathan Edwards preached this in, in the first great awakening in the United States. There were thousands, 20, over 20-some thousand, if I remember the, the number correctly, over 20-some thousand people that were saved under the preaching of, of Jonathan Edwards in the first great awakening. And Jonathan Edwards not only preached the doctrines that I'm preaching tonight, but he defended them in a way that I could never even hope to approach to. I mean, he was a first-class theologian, and he preached this and people got saved. Then we think about Spurgeon in England. It's almost comical. Uh, Again, if you do very much reading on the subject, you you run across all kinds of very strange things that people say. But you'll run across perhaps uh, some things that have been said by John R. Rice, for instance. And John R. Rice uh, did not believe that Spurgeon believed all the doctrines of grace. And uh, when you read what Spurgeon had to say, you find out that people like to manipulate what Spurgeon said. They like to quote him, but they like to take him out of context, and they don't like to look at his entire theology. And there were thousands of people who were saved under the preaching of Spurgeon, and he didn't deviate in any way from what I preached to you on this subject in the last few weeks. So you see, being chosen by God does not hinder evangelism. It never has, and it never will. But I want to warn you about something, and that is that we're not talking about the kind of evangelism that the Rices have done, and not like the Hudsons have done, and certainly not like the Hiles have done, not like those people preach and are still preaching. Now let me state to you first of all tonight on this that chosen by God equals proper evangelism. Now let's think about the methods of evangelism today, the, the ones that is practiced by the hyper-fundamentalists. The hyper-fundamentalist will trot up to about five dozen doors on a Saturday. He knocks on the door, and he begins a three-point presentation of what he calls the gospel. He asks the person if he wants to go to heaven. He tells him that God loves him, and then he gets him to repeat a prayer after him, a salvation prayer, what they call. And then he pronounces that person saved, and he moves on to the next door. I mean, he's got to get his quota that day. Well, what he has not done is to make that person aware of where he stands in the eyes of God. He doesn't let that person know that he is a condemned sinner, that the wrath of God abides upon him, and that most certainly he must repent of all of his sins, and then that there will be evidence after the person is saved. He will follow the Lord, because the Bible says, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. But do those people follow the Lord? And I think that you'll find the vast majority majority of them don't come to church. They're never baptized. They don't become holy. They have no evidence at all of salvation. I told you before when I was preaching on this that I read the statistics of the church, uh, Baptist church in America that claims to be the largest Sunday school in America. And someone followed up on the conversions that were supposed to have made that church and less than 1% of the people that they claim were saved, showed any evidence at all of any salvation. But what does Paul say in these verses? He says that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And so regardless of what you believe on the doctrine of election, we would all have to admit that this is true, that a person who is saved must evidence something about holiness in his life. What do we say here? You can't be sanctified without being justified, and you can't be justified without being sanctified. You see, a person does not get saved and then decide at some later time, some far-off time, wherever it might be, or even not at all, that they want to be sanctified. A person who gets saved gets 
justified and he gets sanctified. He starts to become a holy person living for the Lord. Now, what did I say salvation is? Salvation is being rightly related to God. And if you are chosen to salvation, you will be holy. And if there is no holiness, there is no salvation. So don't let a person ever hang their hat on the fact that they've said somebody's prayer or have admitted to something that they want them to admit to without having holiness in their life because people don't get saved without it. There will be evidence of it. Now, proper evangelism is something that leaves the lost sinner in the dust. It makes him totally dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit to work a work of regeneration in his heart. The Holy Spirit must work in his heart. But you'll notice this, that many of these people, in fact, most of them, when they are witnessing or when they're doing their soul winning, that they never mention the Holy Spirit. Nobody ever talks about the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Because they don't depend on the Holy Spirit. They, they don't think that the Holy Spirit even has to get involved much of the time. And if they do believe that in some way or another, they believe merely that the Holy Spirit is some kind of an influence, but he's a general influence, not specifically. And he doesn't work specifically on a person's heart. And so they believe that God has given the Holy Spirit to every person without differentiation. But if that is logically true, if... if the Holy Spirit comes to every person without differentiation, then God is not the one who is in control of salvation. Because if all men could repent at will without the leadership of the Holy Spirit, then it's not actually God who's done anything in man. I mean, can we see the logic in that? If everybody can do exactly the same thing, then what is it that God does in this? Well, it takes the Holy Spirit completely out of it. And what it does is make the difference in man the fact that the man himself has decided that he will believe in Christ. And that's simply all that it is. He decides that he wants to get saved, and so he gets saved. And God's not even in the picture in that, in that scenario. Well, the Holy Spirit work is essential in salvation. And this always causes us to have the proper evangelism. That, that's because the Holy Spirit is dispensed by God upon whom he will. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. And that's what Paul said in Romans 9, verse 16. So when you ignore election, when you ignore being chosen by God in salvation, you will fall into error in evangelism. And most people have. Many have. Now, secondly, chosen by God equals positive evangelism. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, if you understand that there is no re uh, election in salvation, and that's not a part of it. It would mean that you're basically shooting in the dark. Every time that you go out with a Bible under your arm and a tract in your hand, it's nothing but a crapshoot because you have no idea whether anybody out there could actually be saved or not. I mean, it's possible that no one would be saved. I mean, the death of Christ is so indiscriminate that could, it could have been totally in vain. In other words, I mean... Think about this. If God has not chosen some to salvation, he hasn't chosen any to salvation. And if he has not ensured the salvation of some, then he hasn't ensured the salvation of anybody. So what you have is a situation where Christ could have come into the world and there would be nobody saved because it's all up, left up to chance. God hasn't done anything for anyone. He hasn't chosen anyone. And so it's all uh, left up to chance, whatever man might do. But did Christ come in hopes that somebody might believe? Is that what you think about Christ's death? That he came into this world just hoping 
that somebody would believe in him? I don't think the Bible teaches that. What the Bible teaches is that Christ's death, when he came into this world, ensured that there would be a vast number of people saved, people from every kindred, nation, tongue, and tribe, as the book of Revelation tells us, who would be saved because God knows that his people are in the world and he sent Christ to save them. But without that, there is no guarantee that anyone would ever be saved. And then let me go further than that. Without election, no one would be saved. And why wouldn't they? Because the Bible says that we are at enmity with God. We can't change ourselves. We can't do anything for ourselves. And so men like Spurgeon preach those kinds of things. And Spurgeon, whom John R. Rice didn't believe uh, preached particular redemption, said, and I quoted it a couple of weeks ago, I'm glad that God chose me before I was born because he never would have chosen me after I was born. The only way that anyone ever gets saved is by God's choice. Now let's go back to the original premise that I stated in the beginning of the message. God chose us for his glory before he chose us for our good. Now let's think about this. If there is no one in the world who has been chosen, then where is God going to get his glory? Why, why is there a world of sinners out here today? Why does God even let the world exist if he doesn't know that he's going to receive glory from it? Does that make sense to anybody? Of course God knows whether he will receive the glory. And the world exists today because God has his people here who are chosen and they will be saved when the gospel of Christ is preached to them. And that's why I say that chosen by God equals positive evangelism. And the reason it does is because we're guaranteed results. What does the Word of God say? It says, His Word will not return to Him void. Does God know that? Why did God make that statement? My Word will not return to me void. Why did He make the statement? Because He knew what the Word would accomplish. He knew exactly what it would accomplish. And so there's no fear. There's no doubt in this. There will be people saved. And we can go out with full confidence when we preach the gospel of Christ and know that there are people out there who will believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let me warn you about something. Let me caution you about something else. God has not told us to go out and try to determine if somebody is one of the elect of God. I don't worry about that. Every person that I preach the gospel of Christ to, as far as I'm concerned, is exactly what the Word of God says, and I believe it with all my heart. If you will believe, you will be saved. Every single person that we come in contact with, God never tells us to try to figure out who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. We preach the Word of God, and God says if they will believe, they will be saved. Now, one preacher put it this way, and uh, he kind of waffles somewhat on, on these doctrines. In some places, it looks like, I'm not going to mention his name right now. Uh, you probably wouldn't even know it if I mentioned it. But um, he, he waffles a little bit on this, and sometimes you read what he has to say, and you think, well, he's in full agreement with what I'm preaching. The next time he says something in another verse that you're not quite so sure. But he did say something that I thought was very good. And he said that when we die and we go to heaven that on the front side of the door, it says, whosoever will. And when you go through the door, you look on the back side, it says, chosen by God. And that's all that I need to know. Whosoever will, and when they get saved, they were chosen by God. I know that to be true. Now, let me finish with the last statement on your listening sheet tonight. Either God has chosen us to salvation, or we will never be saved. 
And the reason I say this is because the human heart does not have the capacity to choose anything that's without blame, that's holy, and that is loving towards God. We do not have the capacity. We're totally unable unable because of the depravity and the wickedness of our hearts. You see, friends, if Jesus Christ were standing right here in this room tonight, we, we would hate him. We would beat him. We would spit on him. We would mock him. And then we would crucify him. And you know why? Because we are no different than that angry mob who took him on that day and put him to death. We are no different at all than any of those people. And the only possible thing, the only possible thing that could change us to where we wouldn't do that is if God works in our heart and changes us so we won't. That's the only reason why. And that's because without God, we're under the power of Satan and the depravity of our hearts. And that's the teaching over and over and over again of Scripture. God must change us. God must do the work. It's all up to God. Now you wonder then, why does any person think that now I can rise out of my depravity and I can now trust Christ to save me? Friend, it can't happen. It will not happen. No one can rise out of their depravity. When I was preaching on this on Sunday, I believe it was, uh, maybe you didn't even recognize it, I don't know, but I said you can't transfer yourself from one kingdom to another. God has to do that. You can't do it. And And the moment that you surrender that thought to God, then you have no trouble with this because God is the one who moves you from here to there. And as long as he's one in the control, he might as well be in control of everything, hadn't he? Because he is anyway, you might as well agree to that. So he moved in our hearts first, and that was all for one purpose. God's honor and his glory alone. Not ours, but his. And so that's why I preach and why I believe that we're chosen by God. We are chosen by God, or else every one of us would perish. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth that you've given us from your word tonight. And Lord, there's nothing at all that we can boast in. There's not a person here who could look at themselves and say, oh, I know why God chose me. It's because I was this or because I was that. The only thing